Well, good morning. So good to see everybody here this morning. So glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, you really are our honored guest. I know Blaine already mentioned that, but we, we want to reiterate that. We're thankful that you're here. Thank you so much to everybody for your presence. Uh, last month, David began a series of lessons that we're going to be doing each month on doctrine. We're actually doing several different series of lessons throughout each month, and one of those is doctrine. And if you recall, maybe it's a little bit over a month ago, I believe, uh, David talked about why doctrine is so important, and he gave four or five reasons why, maybe even more, why doctrine is so very important. And not just any doctrine, right doctrine, true doctrine, or true teaching. And he talked about the importance of that, and it's so, it is so very important. And that's not just our words. That's what the Bible says. And, and David pointed to several passages in Scripture that underscore the importance of doctrine, right doctrine. And, and it was just a, a wonderful lesson there. In the following months and the rest of the year, we're going to be going over specific doctrines that are generally um, unique amongst the churches of Christ. Things like no instruments in worship, things like... Um, why we partake the Lord's Supper every single Sunday, and, and so on and so forth. We'll get, we'll get to those in, in future months. But before we actually get to, to those, I, I think it's important for us to talk about some, some general principles about the Church of Christ. And you can see that the title is just the Church of Christ. So that's what we want to uh, kind of talk about this morning. And then again, in future lessons, move on to those specific doctrines within the Church of Christ. Here's an interesting question. That I want you to, to ponder here. When people think about the church of Christ, what do they think of? And what I mean is, I'm sure you have neighbors, family members, uh, people at, at work or whatever who uh, maybe aren't a part of any church or maybe are a part of a denominational church. What do they think about when they hear just the phrase, the church of Christ? That's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, we actually talked about that in our Bible class, a young adult Bible class, a few weeks ago and had some, some good discussion on that. I'm sure there could be a, a ton of different things that people think about when they just hear that phrase, the Church of Christ. In my experience, and this is just my experience, it may be completely different from yours, but in my experience, when, I, when people talk about or, or hear the, the Church of Christ, what I have heard them reiterate back to me is that the Church of Christ is just another church amongst the many and that it's really conservative. That's kind of what, what I have heard in, in my time when people you know, basically say, hey, you're part of the, the Church of Christ or, or whatnot. That's generally what I hear, that we're just another church amongst the many different churches and that we're really conservative. Now we'll come back to that idea of being just another church amongst the many. We'll, we'll get to that here in a, a little bit. But I want to kind of address that, the, the conservative part. You know, we're, we're generally seen as being conservative. And, and usually when people say that, it's not necessarily a, a compliment. It's more of a, a, a knock, as if we're, we're maybe strict, that we don't allow certain things or we don't do certain things, and maybe we're missing out on, on some things or, or, or whatnot. Well, folks, th what we really want to get to this morning is that in the Church of Christ, we don't just do things just because, or just because we, we want to, or because we like something to be a certain way, what we strive to do is stick as closely to the Bible as possible. We want to be the New Testament church, the church that's in the scripture. 
When we flip through the pages, what did they do? And we want to implement that in our day. That's, that's our goal within the church of Christ is to implement what the New Testament church did. Be that church. And this idea that we're talking about is really this idea of restoration. Within the churches of Christ, we are really, really big on the idea of restoration. Our goal, again, is to restore the New Testament church in our day. If there's something that's not happening that that the New Testament church did, but we want to restore it. We want to do what they did. That's our goal. That's our aim. Now, the question is, why the goal of restoration? And now, a lot of the stuff we're going to say here is is from a a book by a guy named Dan Chambers, and this comes from him. He wrote a book called Churches in the Shape of the Scriptures, I believe is is what it's called. And and he has has this list here. Why the goal of, of restoration? Well, number one, God has always given his people instructions for life. Always. If we go back to the Old Testament, you remember Mount Sinai when God's handing down the law to his people? And he gave them these, these commands, really summed up in those Ten Commandments. There's a lot more than ten, but you can kind of sum them up in the Ten Commandments. And he expected, or, or he gave him, uh, his people, these instructions for life, for, for their living, to follow. And, and it's the same in the New Testament. Now, we didn't all meet at a mountain and God didn't hand us down t- t- you know, Ten Commandments like, like he did in the Old Testament. But he's revealed his will, his will here in the Bible. And he... He, that's his instructions for our life today. And it's not just instructions, you know, to, to check off as a, you know, like a laundry list of items to keep. These are items that help us live righteous lives, that help us be godly like him, live like him, and, and actually lead to an abundant life. He's always given his people instructions for life. And number two, I kind of already almost jumped ahead there, but God has always demanded complete obedience of his people. Whenever God handed down Uh, his will to the Israelites in the Old Testament, he expected them to completely keep it. Not 50%, not 75%, not even 99%, 100%. And there were penalties if you didn't keep it 100%. And it's the same. He wants us to keep his will completely. He's always expected that. And then, but, but here's really where the idea of restoration comes in. God's people don't always obey God's instructions. God's always, he's given us instructions for life. He expects us to keep it. But our problem is we don't always keep it. We sometimes neglect to do God's will. Now, some people willfully, uh, willfully don't do God's will. But I think in many cases, God's will is overlooked or lost on a matter. And here's what Dan Chambers says about this, getting to doctrine here. When a doctrine of God is lost... Most of us in the churches of Christ are convinced that God wants that doctrine restored. In other words, he wants his people to once again start doing what he originally told them to do. And so again, some people, or some places maybe, the, the, the doctrine, teaching, gets lost or gets just overlooked or neglected. And we in the churches of Christ, we want to restore what God has said. If something is lost or we're not doing something or, or we've overlooked something, well, we want to restore that. We want to restore what God has said and put it into practice here in our, our congregation. That's our goal, restoration. And this is a, a, a really a theme that we see in Scripture. 
We're going to go to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be there. They're up here on the screen. But this idea of restoration is, is found in the Scripture. When, some, when a doctrine or a, a part of uh, the will of God was lost, we see the people of God restoring it. And there, there's one example here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now in the book of Nehemiah, just to kind of refresh, the Israelites had returned from a period of exile. Remember, they were taken captive by the Babylonians. They've now returned to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is still actually in, in the Persian uh, capital. He's the, he's the cupbearer for the king of Persia. And Nehemiah hears that the walls of Jerusalem are in shambles. They're broken down. They're dilapidated. And he gets really upset. He's really sad. And he wants to go back and rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah asks the king if he could return. And so he ends up going back and they rebuild the wall in 52 days. Very quick period of time. They rebuild this wall. It's an amazing thing. So by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, the wall's already rebuilt. The people are already back in Jerusalem. But it's now time for the Israelites to celebrate one of their feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the chapter starts with Ezra reading the, the, the law to all the people. In Ezra, uh, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3, here's what it says. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women. Those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So you see all the people are gathered together. The, the feast hasn't, hasn't started yet, but the, the people have gathered together to read the law, and Ezra reads it to them, and they're all listening. And if we kept reading, what ends up happening is the, the Levites go out and they start teaching the people what they've just heard. It's kind of like what we're doing here. We read a passage and somebody explains it. So the Levites go out and they're explaining what's been read to the people so everybody can have understanding. But then we get down to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 17. And this is where the, the restoration takes place. There's a second day of reading amongst the leaders of Israel. And that's what we want to jump down to, verses 13 to 17 of chapter 8. Here's what it says. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. And there was great rejoicing. Did we see what happened there? During the Feast of Booths, what the Israelites were to do were to make booths, these temporary shelters, if you will, or temporary tabernacles to live in during this feast. And it was to commemorate when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they had to live in temporary shelters for a time. And it was commemorating that event. But what does it say? It is said since the, since the time of Joshua, 
Folks, Joshua was the, the leader right after Moses. It had been almost a thousand years since the time of Joshua, and they had not been making temporary shelters to reside in during this feast. For almost a thousand years, this practice had been neglected. So what did they do? Well, they just kept neglecting the, the law, right? No, that's not what happened. They didn't keep neglecting it. They didn't say this isn't important. They got to work immediately. They went out and grabbed palm branches and, and myrtle branches and all types of leafy branches to build these temporary huts because they were neglecting the command for over a thousand years. They couldn't just chalk it up to the exile and say, you know what, it's been 70 years, we haven't been able to do it in exile. No, it's been much longer. And they said, you know what, we got to restore this practice. Because why? God said so. You read there, it's, it's they found the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That's why they did it. Now notice, there's no deliberation. They don't say, hey, listen, let's talk about this for a few minutes and make sure this is what we need to do. No, they immediately got to work because that's what God commanded. Notice they also didn't say, hey, this really isn't a heaven or hell issue. You know, this isn't a salvation issue, so we don't really need to, to worry about that. No, they got to work because God said it. And so they restored that practice to, to rebuild, to build those booths and to live in them during this feast because that's what God had said. And that's what we want to do. If God says something, we want to do it. We want to restore what God has said today. Another example, very quickly, uh, 1 Chronicles, if you want to flip over there in chapter 15. 1 Chronicles chapter uh, 13, I mean, 13 and, and 15. We'll actually get to, to both of those here in, in just a minute. But in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 13, David makes some plans to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. This was kind of his site, uh, his, his capital city, and he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he wants to have a big celebration. Because the Ark had basically been in storage for years. It had been through a lot of different things. Uh, the Philistines actually captured it, and some really terrible things happened to the Philistines, so they send it back. And basically the ark was in storage for quite a while. And so David's trying to bring it out of storage and into the capital city of Jerusalem. And it's going to, again, the ark was very important because that's where God would rest on the mercy seat. And it represented his presence among the people. And so David wants to bring it back. And so here's what happens in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verses 7 through 14. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before the Lord. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. I know this is probably a familiar passage to many of you, but David is trying to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And he gets these guys, Ahuzzah and Ahio, are going to 
put this on a new cart, not just any type of cart, a new cart. It's probably a fresh, brand new cart. And they're bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and it starts stumbling. The oxen stumble, and, and it, the ark, I could see it just teetering and about to fall over. And Uzzah reaches out, and he grabs it, and he gets struck down by God. He's, you're not supposed to touch the ark. That was prohibited. And he touched the ark, and God struck him down. He was killed right there. And it kind of put a halt to this whole celebration. You see, this wasn't just a few people gathered together. It was all of Israel was celebrating with all of their might. And it comes to a screeching halt because Uzzah reached out and touched it. Now, we may give Uzzah a bad rap here, but I think anybody in their right mind is probably going to try to save the ark there, right? We're not going to let it stumble over it. He didn't want to, and he touched it, and he, he suffered because of it. And so David, it says, he became angry and afraid. He was afraid because God had struck somebody dead right then. And he feared God and he respected his power. But he's also probably angry because this huge celebration to bring the ark had been, been shut down, basically. And so what happens is the ark goes to this, this man named Obed-Edom in his house for three more months. But if we flip over to First, uh, First Chronicles chapter 15, David tries again to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And we won't read the entirety of this, but basically David is successful this time. And he's successful because of what happens here in verses 11 through 15. Here's what it says. Then David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priest, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Do we see what happened there? The first time the Israelites did not carry the ark according to God's ordinance. They put it on a new cart. Hey, listen, a new cart sounds nice to put it on. And that, that may have been really appropriate to them, but that's not what God said. God didn't say carry it on a new cart. He said the Levites need to carry it on poles on their shoulders. That's what he commanded through Moses. And so the first time things went haywire because they did not follow what God said. And Uzzah reached out and touched the ark. But the second time, David says, listen, we didn't follow God according to the ordinance the first time. And that's why bad things happen. But this time, we're going to follow what God said. We're going to follow what God commanded Moses. And everything worked out. And the celebration was on and they brought the ark into Jerusalem. Because they sought God according to the ordinance on this second time. Again, they restored the practice of carrying the ark correctly. Folks, again, we in the churches of Christ, we want to restore God's word today. Everything that he says, we want to do it. Even if it's the smallest thing, it may, seem, it may have seemed kind of silly to build shelters. It may have seemed silly to not be able to carry the ark on a, on a new cart. But God, didn't, God had specific instructions for them. And even if it seems silly to them or seems small to them, it was important because God said it. Whatever God says is important and we need to be following it 
today, whatever he says, however he says it. Some may ask then, you know, why? Why do we have to do things uh, according to the Bible, exactly how God said it? Well, I found this quote from Dave Miller from Apologetics Press, and he has uh, some really, uh, really good insights here, I think, on, on why we need to do it, things the way God said to do them. Here's what he says. New Testament churches of Christ have no official creeds, church manuals, or confessions of faith to which members must subscribe. There are no synods, councils, or governing bodies handing down official decrees to churches. The only authoritative document that governs belief and practice is the Bible. Once the New Testament was completely revealed by the Holy Spirit, the Bible became God's complete revelation to humans. Thus, the Bible presents itself as the inspired and errant and fallible word of God, the only reliable and authoritative guide to get humans from this life to heaven. And then he cites several verses there. Folks, we believe that God holds all authority, all power, and whatever he says goes. And we want to follow that as closely as possible. We don't want to follow our own just our own intuitions or our own feelings or desires. We want to follow what God says. And he's handed down his word to us in this scripture, in this book. And so that's what we want to follow as, as closely as possible. Now, I want to point out very quickly, this is not, not in a manner to say, hey, we're better than everybody else. Or, hey, look at us. We're following God closer than you are. No, folks, this isn't an attempt to follow the king, to follow God. He is the one true God that we want to follow. And it's all for him. It's all for his glory, not for ours, not for anybody else's. It's all for his glory. And we want to follow him because he has authority. He is God. He is king. He is Lord. And we want to please him. That's simply the, the case for us. No other reason. We just want to please what God, we want to please God. We want to do what he says. So, again, we are very much about restoring God's word today. Every bit of it here in the church of Christ. Now, as we close out here, I mentioned a little bit ago, I think a lot of people probably think that the churches of Christ are just another church amongst the many, right? Folks, if we got out in our cars and you drive down in any direction, down Schillinger Road, down Airport Boulevard, you're likely to see a ton of church buildings, a ton of different signs, a ton of different uh, things in here in Mobile, any city. There are tons of, of churches. But we don't believe that we're just another denomination or that we're just another church amongst the many. Because... Not just because that's what we want to believe or because we're better than anybody else. Again, that's just because that's what the Bible says. In the Bible, there is only one church. There is only one single church. And that's, we, that's who we believe we are, that one single church. There's not multiple. There's not different branches. There's only one church. And that's what we believe we are today is that one church, the one true church. And there's a few verses we want to point to here, just, just a couple actually. The Bible claims that there's one church. Jesus says it. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And here's Jesus' response to that. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. After this beautiful confession by Peter, Jesus says that I will build my church church church. Church. 
Number one, it's his church. But number two, there's not multiple churches. He doesn't say, I'll build my churches or I'll build my different branches. I will build my church. There's only one church that Jesus Christ built. It's the church that we see in the Bible, in the New Testament. That's the church, and that's who we believe we are. We're just a continuation of the one church that we see in the Scriptures. And that's why we want to stick as closely as possible to that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You can see here the unity in Paul's words, one, 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 over and over again. But he says there at the beginning, there's just one body. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the one body of Christ. There's not multiple bodies of Christ. There's not multiple different churches. There's just one body. Now, we do need to be clear, in the New Testament, there were different congregations of the Lord's church. There were local churches like, for instance, the church in Corinth or the church in Thessalonica or the church in Laodicea, but they were all the one church. They're just in different locations. They're all the same church. And so there's only one body, and you can see that picture up there. That's why I put this picture. People are coming into the cross, and it represents the, the body of Christ, the people coming into one body. There's not multiple. There's only one church. And we believe that we are the one church. There, and, and folks, again, you will not flip through the scriptures and find one single hint of denominations. It, it, they're not in the scriptures. That came hundreds of years later, denominations and splits. There's only one church, and that's what we want to be, is that one church found in the New Testament. So why is this important? Well, if there's only one church... And there is, we just talked about that. Well, then we should strive to be just like that church. We should strive to be that one church. Shouldn't we want to be the church seen in the New Testament, which is the one that Jesus Christ built, the only true church? And whatever they did in the New Testament church, we need to be doing today. That's our goal. That's our aim in the churches of Christ. So why we're going over this is because in the following months, again, we're going to be going over doctrines, specific doctrines that are, again, generally unique to the churches of Christ. And we wanted, I wanted to do this lesson because we, we wanted to point out that we're not doing, when we go over these doctrines, it's not just something that we're, we're coming up with or we're just implementing because we like it. We want to have a scriptural basis for everything that we do in the church of Christ. We want to be able to say, hey, here's where we, why we do what we do. It's right here in the pages. We find authority from God's word for it. And that's why we've kind of done this lesson today, because we want to make sure everybody understands it's all about God's word. And I want to reiterate as we, we close here this morning, what it all boils down to is pleasing God. It's not about boasting saying we're better than everybody else or that we are, are you know we're exclusive or anything like that no we're we just want to please God we just want to follow what God says as closely as possible it's not about us it's not about pleasing ourselves it's about pleasing him and folks that's what exactly what we want to do in the church but isn't that exactly what we want to do in our individual lives as well 
We want to follow God's word as closely as possible in every aspect of our lives. And this morning, if you haven't been doing that, we hope that you'll make that change and start patterning your life after this book right here. This is the authority. This is his word, and we need to be following it. We're not going to be perfect, and we're not perfect in the, here in the churches of Christ. We make mistakes, but we are striving to do what God has said. And I know that we will pattern our lives as closely as possible after this book. But this morning, if you haven't and you need to come forward, please do that this morning. If you've never been added to the church, brought into this one body, you can do that this morning. If you have any need, won't you come forward right now as we stand and as we sing?